0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome to The Critic's podcast, continuing the Black's History Week podcast on British military strategy and deployments. In this episode, Professor Jeremy Black talked to The Critic's Deputy Editor, Graham Stewart, about the role Britain's nuclear deterrent and conventional forces played in facing the Warsaw Pact from Brezhnev to Gorbachev.
1: Professor Jeremy Black, in previous episodes of Black's History Week podcasts about the role and deployment of the British armed forces the last 200 years, um, there's one element that we haven't discussed at great length, and that is uh, Britain's nuclear deterrent, um, which dates from 1952. I wonder if we could start this discussion uh, with an outline from you as to the various stages of the development of Britain's nuclear, independent nuclear deterrent and uh, the nature of the collaboration with the United States as that developed over the decades.
0: Yes, um, I think it was regarded by the Attlee government as a crucial way to provide an ultimate guarantee. Uh, for Britain. I think to a certain extent it arose from the isolation of 1940, it arose from a a degree of anxiety in the late 40s prior to the foundation of NATO in 1949 as to how committed the United States would be. to the uh, defense of Western Europe and Britain specifically. Uh, So there were political reasons underlying it. Um, I wouldn't say there was any specific military need at that moment. I mean, in a sense, the international situation in the late forties was very fluid, but there was no necessary reason to believe. After all, when the British were making the decisions, as yet, at that stage, they didn't know that the Soviet Union was far advanced uh, in its development of both the atom bomb and um, a delivery technology, which is the more important thing. Um, so that in many senses, there, it wasn't so much a deterrent against the Soviet use of nuclear weaponry, but rather a deterrent against um, a Soviet conventional invasion of Western Europe.
1: So, I mean, initially the intention of the British government was to have not only Britain's own nuclear weapons but also an independent delivery system. That, that was cancelled in um, 1962 with the, uh, the end of the Skybolt programme. Um, so we found ourselves turning to, to the Americans who... you. Know, going back to the end of the war, had suddenly not been so cooperative with the end of the Manhattan Project, co- cooperation with, with the British. Uh, how, how were the steps taken to uh, um, uh, develop this aspect of the special relationship?
0: Well, that's a question. Can I just say first, you're right about um, strategic nuclear weaponry, but there is actually more than one tier of nuclear weaponry, if you like, and the British had within their capacity delivery of tactical nuclear weaponry by means such as artillery or ground-to-ground short-range rockets. What one's really looking at in terms of the relationship with the United States was the development of a strategic um, nuclear force that was going to be able to use submarines and the missiles that would go with them. So that was very different to the idea of free-fall bombs, which had been out, you know, dumb bombs, if you like, um, dropped by aircraft, which had been the original strategic nuclear deterrent or nuclear force. So if you look at original strategic ideas, the British were going to be able to use um, nuclear bombs flying out of air bases in East Anglia, uh, attacking um, Leningrad and Moscow, flying out of British bases in Cyprus, uh, overflying Turkey, a NATO ally, and um, bombing targets in Ukraine, and until the loss of Iraq in a nationalist Anti Western ri- rising in 1958, using the great air base near Kirkuk to do this, you know, to similarly attack uh, targets in the Southern Soviet Union. So there was a, a, a structure, but it was increasingly believed, probably correctly, I discussed this in my uh, Air Power um, book, that there would be difficulties in sufficient aircraft getting through in the face of the build-up of um, soviet air power in terms of the uh, greater uh, effectiveness of jet aircraft um and therefore um there was a need uh to think of another another means of doing so now um one means of doing so which was the system that was to be used by the forced trap the uh, the French, was ground-to-ground, long-range, ballistic missiles. Um, uh, the idea being that fired from a variety of sites in East France, um, that the French would hit targets in the Soviet Union. Uh, the Americans, in a sense, develop a similar um, uh, as part of their so-called triad of nuclear uh delivery. So the triad is submarine base number one. Uh, we're talking about strategic nuclear weaponry, uh, aircraft base number two, and ground-to-ground Minuteman heavy rockets number three. And obviously if you're fire, as you'll appreciate if you're firing a um a ground to ground um uh, rocket uh you can have a much larger rocket than you would fire from a submarine, and therefore you can both take more rocket fuel in it, and also you can deliver more explosive more ordnance, a larger whatever warhead you want to put on it, whether it's a nuclear warhead or a non nuclear warhead um The British decided to go for only one r aspect of the triad and That itself is interesting. I mean, obviously, the development issues of building ground-based delivery systems in Britain in terms of the political response uh, was a key element. Um, But so also was British nuclear thought in the sense that what the British were trying to do was not destroy the Soviet Union in the event of a nuclear war. What they were trying to do is have a nuclear force that was able to act as a deterrent, uh, but which hopefully would not actually have to be used. Um, If it was to be used, the amount of actual damage that you could Um, deliver with the force available to Britain would have been considerable. It would not have been nice to have been at the other end of one of these uh, missiles. But nevertheless, we are not talking about the destruction of civilization as we know it component, um, which you can achieve with a large scale delivery of ground to ground missiles. So part of the situation is that part of the situation is also the way in which nuclear warfare thought is developing in the Um 60s. Um, The idea is that if you have simply ground-based or largely ground-based nuclear delivery, then what you are doing is giving the other side an inducement to mount a first attack, first strike, as it was known. And a first strike would be devastating, uh, if obviously these nuclear weapons are based in Britain, a first strike would be devastating to everybody in Britain. Britain is a relatively small country. And indeed, Brendan Bracken, when the British originally agreed to allow American uh, air bases in East Anglia uh, from which nuclear bombs could be delivered as part of the NATO uh, um system, uh, he actually complained that what this meant is that uh, Britain would be a target when the Soviets mounted their response. Now, obviously, if the British nuclear deterrent was essentially a matter of submarine-launched war, uh, war um, warheads, then a first strike against Britain is not going to end those. Um, and therefore, it gives you not complete invulnerability because submarines. Um, there are methods that could be used to try and, as it were, chart, chart them and hunt them. though no, that's not easy in the enormity of the ocean, particularly in deep waters. Um, but the key thing is that they're not sitting on, you know, in in the middle of the Thames, awaiting, uh, encouraging a nuclear attack on London and so on. So there were a number of reasons why. Um, this should be pushed forward. The British also specifically tried, Macmillan tried to use the aftermath of the Suez crisis and the sense among some American policymakers that America had taken a wrong step in undermining Britain and uh, the British Empire in 1956. And that in a way, Uh, they needed to try and develop um, a new level of military cooperation with Britain. Macmillan took advantage of that to try in turn to get the nuclear arms that uh, he wanted, while the Americans tried in turn to tie Britain in with the argument that this weaponry should only be used for NATO purposes. So you've got a multivalent process. Now, as you probably are aware, at the very same time, the Americans are discouraging the governments of Germany and Japan, both of which are interested in developing a nuclear weaponry capability, they're discouraging them from doing so. So it's quite a complex nuclear diplomacy from the American perspective it's quite complex for the British and for the British there is the additional uh, situation that whereas in the development of weapon systems in the 50s they essentially had been looking and relying on their own technology let's say in tanks um, the situation is very very different we're in a field in which Britain needs help Um, and the only possible viable partner is is the United States. And I think it's it's worth pointing out that this is also, to a degree that isn't always adequately brought out, an issue in terms of the tensions surrounding Britain's entry to the European economic community being vetoed by the French. Um, You might argue um, that the... This was the possibility for a viable uh, European um, uh, defence programme, whether that was possible or not. And that's a matter we could discuss. uh, It was certainly not the course followed by either France or Britain. And before people get around to blaming the British, as they always seem to like doing, it's worth pointing out that the major no-sayer was General de Gaulle.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, um, you you talked about the the difference between strategic nuclear weapons and tactical ones. In the 60s and 70s for Britain, the the strategic weapons are launched from submarines, these are Polaris, uh, and then in the early 80s, that becomes Trident. Um, could you say a little bit more about tactical nuclear weapons as used, uh, or rather, as as held by the uh, the British Army of the Rhine in, in northern Germany? What what kind of weaponry are we talking here, and what what sort of range and effect would these tactical nuclear weapons have had had they been deployed in anger?
0: Uh, up to about twenty five miles, there is a different range of um, tactical weapons available, including, incidentally. Uh, laid by the Americans in the Fulda Gap, um, nuclear mines. Um, a nuclear warhead can be um, weaponized and used in quite small um, devices. Well, you go down to the level of the briefcase bomb, of course. And um, so you have a, a certain amount of nuclear shells that are that are available for artillery pieces you have a certain amount of nuclear warheads that are available for ground-to-ground short-range rockets. Um, You can actually um, try and do this with uh, tank shells as well. Um, But artillery was the major one, and it would have been used in defence against a Soviet um soviet tank advance and whether it would have worked or not nobody knows i mean this is i uh, you know i i um i think it's fair to say that it's very very difficult to work out what would have happened in this event i mean it's it's a very uh, it's a very interesting question and i don't propose to give a definitive answer on it because the soviets themselves would almost certainly have been releasing, by means of firing shells, gas against the defenders, um, and there would have been the most almighty um, uh, exchange of ordnance, which would have been very, very, very deadly. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, anti-tank guns in these positions, I mean, I, as you know, in my book on tank warfare, I've argued that anti-tank guns are the most underrated uh, weapon of the uh, of the period uh, anti-tank guns could be given a nuclear um, uh, capability. The problem is um, the actual, um, extent to which your opponents advance on an axis, which enables you to use your your firepower, because by the nature of things, anti tank guns aren't as mobile. Although you know they can have an element of mobility, but they aren't generally as mobile as advancing armor. So that is the major problem. But I think they would have certainly given the Soviets pause for thought.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, this is all the strategizing and deployment is is all set against the backdrop of the late 1960s and early 1970s, which was referred to as a period of, of détente. Um, what, what really was détente uh, and how did it affect the, uh, the British defence priorities?
0: Well, détente is a term used um, in the mid to late 70s, and it reflects a number of factors. It reflects the economic strain arising for everybody uh, as a result of the bursting of the long boom. So that's a problem with with less money to spend on defense or armaments, if you like. It reflects the degree of uncertainty in the West as a result of the American political and economic crisis during uh, the Nixon years and immediately afterwards. It reflects the rise of the Social Democrats in um the SD, sorry, you know the you know the the, the, the German Social Democrats, sorry, um, SPD, um, and their desire to have an Ostpolitik and to create a new European space. Um, so it reflects a number of political factors, and to an extent, particularly as expressed by Ostpolitik, there is an anxiety in the case of both London and Washington, and also to a degree in in Paris, um, it has been argued that one of the reasons that Pompidou let Britain in was not only that Heath was willing to abandon all ideas of defending national interest in entering the European economic community, but also that France wanted Britain in to try and lessen the dominance, potential dominance of West Germany within the European economic community, and that, you know, there was French anxiety about Ostpolitik as well. So um, all of this encourages detente. I think it's fair to say that to a certain extent, and, you know, I try and go into this in my book on the Cold War, the idea that the Soviets have woken up in order to be nicer is ridiculous. <laughs> it's an absolute absurdity. So in some respects, detente is a way to try and deal with the particular problems of German politics, to deal with settling this uh, the, uh, the issue of uh, the um, inter-German problem between West Germany and East Germany. It has a very unattractive aspect because what it does is leave in power... A, a a brutalizing, tyrannical state which uses, you know, torture, uh, that, namely that of East Germany. Um, and obviously, detente in some respects is stabilization in which you go on surrendering Eastern European liberty to, uh, you know, a hostile ideology. Um, But having said that, um, that's the situation that is there in the late 70s. I think it's fair to say um, that detente itself, I mean, it's often argued that it's um, Ronald Reagan that brings it to an end. I think that's, like most canards, rubbish. Um, The fact is that already prior to that, under Carter, there was an American awareness that things were not working out as they thought they should do. And this is, of course, exacerbated and accentuated and focused by the um, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan at the end of 1979. The anxiety also linked to the overthrow of the Shah, the anxiety that the Middle East as a whole is going to change direction. Um, And This, in a sense, means that before Reagan comes in, there are already significant changes in American policy. Now, to a considerable extent, Britain in the 1970s is a broken state. Um, It is suffering from its inability to control the trade unions. It's suffering from economic and financial uh, grave difficulties it's suffering it's suffering from the apparently imminent collapse of, of capitalism in britain and socialism isn't going to work um and on top of that it's uh, although this is less serious there appears to be the possibility that scotland and ireland will become independent and as well as that there's chaos in northern ireland so britain's in chaos britain is not a key player i mean the key player in discussing um both the negotiation of detente and then the failure of detente in terms of the negotiation of detente it's in many senses the key player is west germany with the americans coming along in the wake the key and then in the failure of detente it's the american response to soviet aggression
1: Hmm. And, and besides some of the other aspects of soviet aggression you mentioned there's also the soviet decision to deploy um, the SS-20s, which are sort of intermediate-range nuclear weapons, which are, I mean, they, they can reach Britain. So, you know, um, I, I How significant was the um, SS-20s in in reshaping um, NATO policy, which, which then led to the decision to uh, deploy uh, American cruise missiles in Greenham Common and, and Molesworth? Well, I
0: think the... Um, Soviet deployment of the new me- the new missiles, um, and incidentally, I mean, I saw one on display in Saint Petersburg. Um, they were <laughs> pretty formidable missiles. If, if these are anybody's idea of something that's small, they're not small. Um, the the Soviet deployment of these missiles was a quite clear indication that um, any negotiation of bilateral arms uh, limitations was not likely uh, to be stable now the Soviets argued of course that the United States uh, was the aggressor Uh, but in terms of the European deployment of missiles that was clearly not the case Um, and what it did was um, encourage in particular Margaret Thatcher to um focus on the issue, which she did do, uh, it provided a obvious indicator for the Americans. And there was a real anxiety that under the threat of these weapons, Europe as a whole, maybe not including Britain, would be in effect neutralized and that this would be a very significant success for the Soviet Union, a very significant failure for the United States. So there is that element to it. But separate to that in military terms, there is the question about the relationship between short and intermediate missiles and other related weaponry, and the extent to which it would be possible to fight a war in which there would not be an exchange of the really um, more dangerous, if you like, um strategic nuclear weaponry now this gets us into very complicated territory the idea that you could have a limited nuclear war is one that i've argued in a number of works is um problematic which is a nice academic code for rubbish it's very unclear that under the pressure of events you could fight a nuclear limited nuclear war that you could rely on a mutual understanding of what is going on, that you could rely on an understanding that there was, as it were, a destruction space um, and that beyond that destruction space, uh, there should not be the use of uh, nuclear weaponry. In theory, that would be, as it were, better than an all-out nuclear war. But the actual explanation of process by which this limitation should take place is problematic. Having said that, there was growing interest in the 1980s in the West, including in Britain, in what was known as manoeuvrist warfare, and in the attempt to fight what would be seen as a sub or limited atomic war. And this came from a number of directions. Part of it was the idea of moving from a linear defence system in West Germany to defence in depth and relying on counterattacks, so maneuverist warfare, part of it, and, and the, the equivalent incidentally in the air, uh, part of it is the shift in the American army after the um debacle in in Vietnam which had not gone as had had been hoped And as it were, uh, trying to focus on a war that might be winnable, or at least in which the army would feel more comfortable, which was military engagement in the North European plain and in related areas. So partly it's a revitalization of army doctrine and related weapons systems coming through. Uh, and the British um, have a role in that. I mean, the British, a man called Bagnall, for example, published in the military, publishes extensively on uh, military doctrine in operational terms, manoeuvres terms. The British have a significant tank force in, um, on the North German plain, uh, in near places like Wulfburdel, and the idea is that these this force is going to take part in a mobile war against the Soviets and be able to beat them. Because you see, the original what they're getting away from is the idea that there will be a Soviet superiority in conventional warfare that is so clear that the Western allies would have to trigger a nuclear response and the argument, which was an argument that NATO had agreed on in the 50s. Okay? Now, initially, when that was only a matter of strategic nuclear weapons from the Soviets without any comparable, decent, intermediate weapons, This was something that would lead to a Soviet response against America, and the Western Allies would know that the Americans, as it were, would not let them down. They wouldn't want all their troops in West Germany to be killed without trying to respond, and in responding they would trigger a general nuclear war. The equation of that, or the equations linked to that, in the event of a war only using uh, intermediate nuclear weapons is very different because as you correctly say those could reach London or Paris but they couldn't reach Washington or New York so that again raised a whole host of issues and one of the points that Margaret Thatcher was trying to do um and in this i think it's fair to say She was acting not just in the national interest, but in fact, she was being a good European, which is not generally the way that she is often discussed. Uh, She was trying to ensure the continued American strategic commitment to Western Europe. And if you recall, in the early 80s, there was, as we discussed last time, and as I've discussed in my book on the Cold War, a dramatic sense that the Cold War was becoming hot. Um, A whole host of things, the shooting down of the Um, Korean plane, the um, Able Archer military exercise, which the Soviets thought might be a cover for a NATO attack on them, Um, the uh, American response to arming uh, uh, opposition in Afghanistan. There was a whole host of factors all over the place that were leading to a sense that there might well be a larger conflict And the British were very worried that if this occurred that the Americans might well not take the role, uh, take it as a full scale role, or that the Americans uh, would actually uh, be willing to stand back because they weren't willing to take the equations of deterrence. So Margaret Thatcher had a whole lot of very difficult issues to deal with in the early 80s. And then the situation changes, not immediately with Gorbachev. When Gorbachev comes in, he doesn't immediately signal um, an end to confrontation, uh, neither in Central America nor in Afghanistan uh, or indeed in Angola does he do so. Um, but the direction of travel soon becomes in that direction. And by that point, it is looking unlikely that there will be, I think it's generally agreed by most specialists that 1983 is the last year when it's reasonable to have assumed that the Soviet Union might attack.
1: If if there had been attack at some stage in the early 1980s, an attack which had at least started with conventional weapons. Uh, Do you think the level of of British-American engagement would have been different depending on whether the Warsaw Pact forces had attacked uh, across the northern German plains, in which case they they would have, as it were, hit the British Army of the Rhine first, or if they'd gone through the Fulda Gap and then, in doing so, initially pushed up against American forces...
0: Oh, I think they would have attacked across the front. Right. I mean, right. There's no the, the Soviet strategy, sorry, Soviet operational planning, I should say, was to get into NATO rear areas. Um, and I think they would have attacked along the front. They were not short of troops. They would have attacked along the front from the Schleswig-Holstein Isthmus uh, all the way down um, to the Czech-Austrian frontier. Um, as you say, there would have been the folder gap, sometimes known as the Bavarian Plateau, would have provided them with a rapid advance on Frankfurt and in particular on the major American air base near there, which was a key um, military asset. Um, but I think they would also have moved ac- uh, across the plain north of the Harz, And I think separately, they would have advanced further north on Hamburg and Bremen. So... I think it would have been a very formidable. um, And you know, one of the extents to which so much in my mind of the discussion of the politics of Britain in the last 60, 70 years is limited, and I mentioned this in my book on Britain from 1945 to the present, is it tends to leave out. Uh, any real discussion of the intelligence dimension, um, knowledge of Soviet subversion, knowledge of the interrelationship between foreign powers illicitly and British political movements and so on, which obviously continues to this day. And secondly, tends to underplay the possibility that there would have been war. And I mean, I don't think there's uh, any reason to not be aware that with the British government knowing that uh, Eastern Bloc uh, organisations have been providing money, for example, to elements of the National Union of Miners, um, if you're talking about this going on on precisely the same terms, then it is not surprising that the Prime Minister who would get the intelligence feeds would have known that this, that the um, that there was a Cold War dimension to the struggle involving the IRA, which was provided, of course, with Semtex from Eastern Europe, and also with arms and money through the Soviet intermediary of Libya, uh, and again with the National Union of Miners. Now, you know, some of your listeners may well regard me as living in a fantasy world, saying that I'm afraid that's not true. It would be nice to think that that was a fantasy world. It would be nice to think that elements in British politics would have liked to just see things taking part in a peaceful, democratic uh, debate, but I'm afraid that is just simply not the case. Um, there were individuals, institutions, and movements that wanted violently to see the overthrow of Britain, either for Anti imperial reasons in their terms, or revolutionary Maoist, Marxist um, in their terms, whichever. And these were obviously of great interest to the um, Soviet Union. And, you know, they came close to success. I mean, a combination of the IRA trying to destroy the government and the National Union of Miners and other. Trade unions linked to it, uh, the railwaymen trying to um, wreck the state. Uh, A combination of those uh, would have been a great triumph for the Soviet Union.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I wonder if you can say a little bit more about the nature of um, British conventional forces on land, air and sea. Uh, Starting with the British Army of the Rhine, uh, this was the the age of the chieftain tank, kind of as the main (coughs) battle tank.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I referred already um, to Bagnell, uh, General Sir Nigel Bagnell, who's commander of the British First Corps in Germany from 1980 to 83 and goes on to be chief of the general staff from 85 to 86. He's very much influenced by um, operational doctrine with the emphasis on the heavy tank. The British tanks are heavy tanks as opposed to the West German Leopard Tanks, which are light tanks or more mobile tanks. And the idea is that they should be able to go head to head. Um, They were regarded uh, by themselves at the very least as the elite of the British Army. Um, This was a very different force to the largely infantry force deployed in Northern Ireland. And I think it's fair to say it was battle ready. It wouldn't have been of tremendous much help to Britain if there had been a escalation of the political and trade union chaos either in seventy nine or during the miners' strike. Um, but in military terms, um, for conventional symmetrical warfare against the Soviets, it was a good force and different in a way to. Um, different in a way I mean it, it you know NATO was pretty good at interoperability but the British brought to the table more than for example the Benelux uh, countries did and um there was also a confidence about their commitment whereas there was always an anxiety with the case of the United States that out of area commitments might change their force presence in that area
1: Mm-hmm. And for the Royal Navy, we, we've spoken um, earlier about the, the role of the submarines um, with Polaris and then Trident uh, as, as the delivery system for these nuclear weapons, but um, could you say a bit more about the nature of both the surface fl- fleet and the, uh, the, the anti-Soviet um, operations in, in the North Sea?
0: Right. Well, in terms of the navy, the after the Falklands War ends, you go back to principally NATO commitments. Uh, That means um, number one commitments against this very large and developing. So again, my book on naval warfare since eighteen sixty will cover this, but uh, on. very large um, typhoon-class Soviet submarines, the new class, and their existing classes are pretty good. Um, So you actually have a very significant uh, anti-submarine force, which consists both of hunter submarines, your own hunter submarines, but also, obviously, surface shipping. Then on top of that, the British uh, take part with the Americans who in the 1980s are interested in a more, if you like, active or forward projecting power um, so that the Americans stage naval exercises um, north of Norway and the British take part in them. And the idea is that the British are going to play a key role in protecting NATO's northern flank As you are probably aware, part of that is that, you know, Royal Marine units will be uh, moved into Norway, where they do, where they did, sorry, they still do, uh, frequent training. Uh, the idea being that this is to stop a Soviet advance overland from Mamansk um, and Archangel, where the Soviets are establishing themselves on the North Sea coast. So there is a forward defence profile for the Northeast Atlantic, um, in which Britain and its Navy, and the Royal Marines, remember, are part of the Navy, play a key role. And that's seen as a fundamental NATO task, which also, of course, is linked to um, uh, British national interests. And you could argue the same thing clearly about the way in which the Royal Air Force regularly intercepts and shadows Soviet long range planes um, flying down the North Sea and flying over Britain. And the idea being that the British are showing that they can be vigorous defenders of the North Sea and of their own airspace, which of course acts as a cushion uh, for NATO forces further south on the more on the mainland of Europe. So I think it's fair to say that the British military is fundamentally configured um, for. Uh, defense of the British Isles and the near continent and the near ocean, which means, as we will see next time, that they get a rude surprise when the next actual war they have to fight is in the sands of Kuwait. Yeah. We'll with that next time.
1: We, we will indeed. I, w- I wonder just before we, we do, though, whether uh, we talked last week about uh, the, uh, the logic behind John Knott's 1981 defence review, the need to, or what he saw as the need to focus scarce resources. On uh, combating the, the Warsaw Pact in the North Atlantic and uh, continental Europe, and then of course the Falklands War that that, that, that duly followed that you know the big surprise of one thousand nine hundred and eighty two but uh, apart from the South Atlantic um, wh- what, where, where were the major British defence deployments? outside uh, the, the European theatre in, in the 1970s and 1980s?
0: Oh, um, the British continued um, naval exercises uh, with allies in, for example, the Indian Ocean. Uh, the British continued to have um, show the flag and other... Uh, activities in British colonies dependencies and recent colonies for example to help protect Belize against um, British Honduras as had been uh, against the territorial claims um, of Central American countries Um, yes the British continued to have a role but I mean if you're looking at for example as you earlier were at state chieftain tanks you're looking there at um I mean the army is it's got its commitment in uh, the NATO area it's got this commitment as we've discussed in Northern Ireland the amount of manpower it has to spare elsewhere is limited it's also got now to actually have a garrison in the Falklands Islands which is another military task I mean I think it's fair to say that you know, there are other out of area things. The British take part in jungle warfare training in, you know, the Malaysia Brunei area. They have forces there to protect Brunei. As you know, they've helped uh, with special forces, Oman against uh, the insurrection in dofar You know, the British do have a global presence, but it's not anywhere near the scale it had been prior to the mid 1960s.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, as you hinted, we're, we're going to uh, pick up with what happens at the uh, conclusion of the Cold War, how the British forces adapt to um, the post Warsaw Pact world, uh, the sands of Kuwait, and uh, the uh, terrain of the Balkans lie ahead. But uh, for taking us through. Um, British military strategy and deployments in the 1970s and 80s, uh, Professor Jeremy Black, whose many books include a, a history of tank warfare. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you. Yet I want to, to say to listeners, I mean, it's a difficult position for me because obviously some of you will have read my books and some of you haven't. And I don't really want to repeat. Uh, what I've already written, because in a sense, that makes it pointless to have read the books where there are footnotes, references to other scholars, etc. So if you could understand that these talks are not a substitute for reading the books, they're an attempt to bring out wider issues of British defence in this period.
1: Mm. Very much so, very much so indeed. Professor Black. thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.
0: If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website,
1: www.thecritic.co.uk.